Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Sepad Pod. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by Shamiran Marco. Shamiran is an assistant professor of international relations at the Pardee School of Global Studies at Boston University. Her research and teaching focuses on the international relations of the Middle East with a substantive emphasis on foreign intervention, ethnic conflict, political violence in divided societies, and institutions and state building. She does a lot of work on Iraq and is the editor of a wonderful special issue of the Journal of Intervention and State Building on the the topic of of Iraq, featuring some wonderful contributions. Uh, She's also the co-author of the amazing After the Arab Uprisings, Progress and Stagnation in the Middle East and North Africa. Shamiran, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Simon. It's, uh, it's great to be with you. It's a pleasure. I've been reading your work for a long time now, and I'm really, uh, really looking forward to our, our conversation today. So, Shamiran, I always start with, with the same question, but can you tell us a little bit about what got you interested in the, in the politics of, of Iraq and the politics of the region, please? I think much of that interest stems from the fact that I am from the region. Um, I was born in Iraq and I've been really fascinated in uh, the developments there since, you know, of course, most notably after 2003 um, and just over the past two decades in terms of how different forms of political violence have affected um, state society relations and specifically how different groups have come to navigate the post-2003 system and how different forms of institutional constraints um, and at times opportunities have allowed for kind of uh, the, the system that we see today to develop across time. And so much of my research is really informed by how kind of these pivotal moments in the development of of uh, the state system, but also of particular states, um, shapes the kind of politics that we see unfolding now. Um, and of course, you know the 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 kind of two thousand three war in the case of Iraq, and later the Arab Spring across the rest of the region. Um, kind of got me thinking, I think, as most of us, about um, how states handle different ruptures and how political elites uh, navigate, you know, new opportunities and constraints um, and some of the outcomes that we see that are related to different forms of contentious politics, mass mobilization, foreign intervention, um, that all produce and, you know, in different ways produce very different outcomes across time and space. Sure, that's really, really interesting. I mean, I, I have to ask, why why the state of all things to pique your interest? I mean, as someone that, that is equally interested in, in the concept of the state, what was it about the very idea of the state that, that really drew you in? I think it's it's looking at the ways in which the state is both, you know, the entity by which all of these, you know, in terms of its kind of the, the, the space it occupies, the ways in which the state both provides, you know, the main type, the main constraints that shape how groups and individuals, um, you know, see themselves in relation to their societies, but also the ways in which the state, at least in the case of the MENA region, um, becomes this kind of, in a way, a, a playing field 
um, for how external actors and ex states outside the region um, see and structure their own sense of opportunities um, and how that shapes, you know, alliance formation, how that shapes, um, you know, whether or not uh, different forms of external intervention um, happen across time, whether it be in the forms of, you know, coercive interventions, military interventions, or different types of, um, you know, aid programs, uh, foreign aid programs as forms of external influence. And so the state for me is this kind of, um, you know, it's an, it's a, it's an epistemological um, uh, entity that provides this opportunity for how we understand all forms of contentious politics, different forms of violence. Um, and in that way, you know, the, the state structures both group behavior and individual behavior um, within the kind of confines of that physical space that it occupies. Wow, I guess we got quite philosophically deep very, very quickly there. But uh, yeah. thank you for that. I mean, that's that's really interesting. And the, as you were just observing there, the, the broad spectrum of different ways that you can engage with the very idea of a state intellectually just really became quickly, well, obviously apparent again. Um, Shamaran, can I ask, what was your first recollection of, of engaging with the state or first becoming aware of, of this thing called the state. Can you remember? Um, I think it was, you know, in the lead up to the Iraq war in 2003, right. um, I was an undergrad in uh, Toronto. And there's so much talk about, you know, U.S. democracy promotion and toppling Saddam and the kind of narratives that we that were being circulated um, and, you know, mainstream media outlets, um, as well as, you know, media outlets inside the country, um, was that, you know, that the state was going to be reformulated, that the state as it had existed in the collective minds of Iraqis who had lived under the Ba'athist era, um, you know, there's this almost um, disbelief that, you know, Saddam and the Ba'ath regime and the Iraqi state as they had known would just be gone one day. Um, and it got me really thinking about, you know, what does that mean and how how has the regime being able to across time and in the kind of collective memory of people been able to really imprint this idea that the state is so stable um, and in the sense kind of indestructible. Um, and it got me thinking about, you know, what the American state building project was going to look like. Um, you know, was it the idea that the U.S. was going to create a mirror image of itself, um, like Britain had hoped to do, you know, 70 years prior? Hmm. Uh, and was it, and then the questions then became, what is that, you know, in my mind, what does that mean for people? Um, you know, where is the element of kind of uh, consent building amongst all the different communities in Iraq? And so it got me thinking about, you know, both uh, how fragile states are but also how powerful they are as entities and institutions that shape, you know, people's collective uh, understanding um, in different forms, but collective understanding of how resilient the state could be too. And in that sense, really kind of indestructible, right? That yeah. it's not possible that the bath system could just collapse. It's not possible that, you know, Saddam's regime is not going to be uh, toppled and so, or is going to be toppled. And so, you know, that was my first kind of analytical exposure to the idea of a state in that sense. Sure. 
You mentioned that you were in Toronto this time. What were you studying there? I was an undergrad um, majoring in politics and political philosophy. Okay, so there's a there's an intellectual dimension to to the way that you were seeing seeing the state and seeing what was happening to your 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 homeland, if you will. Yes, and a lot of that came from discussions that I took with um, uh, a mentor and one of one of the best professors I had the privilege to study under. Um, Professor Otto Sakioto, who is um, who is um, you know works on a lot of um, is retired now, but uh, the course that I taken with him was like race and citizenship and how we understand um, the kind of legacies of colonialism and how that shapes both politics in the you know in in former colonies, but also in Western states and. There was so much emphasis on the kind of legacies that we see, you know, in some countries in Africa, but of course in the Middle East and in other post-colonial societies, how different forms of contentious politics resonate and kind of reverberate across different time periods. And the different forms of diffusion that happen, you know, in colonial societies that then shape the type of states that come about, but also the types of elites that emerge um, you know, in, in the ways in which they, they govern these post-colonial societies, especially kind of divided post-colonial societies where the centers of power are not as um, as robust, right? There's yeah. so much happening at the periphery. And so his course and, you know, in, in being under his mentorship really got me thinking about these historical legacies um, and specifically the kind of colonial historical legacies and their impact on modern societies and modern states you know, in Africa, but as well as the Middle East in my case. And so it was through different conversations with him and in the course, and of course with other friends in the course, um, that was, you know, that kind of resonated with me. Sure. Let's just build on your intellectual journey, if I may, um, briefly. You finished your, your degree in politics and political theory, and then then where did your journey take you? Sure. Then I had the opportunity to do an MA also in political science um, at Wilfrid Laurier University, and that's based in Waterloo. Uh, it's about two hours away from Toronto. Um, and then I took some time off, uh, moved to Boston, and I started kind of exploring PhD programs after deciding uh, not to pursue law school, um, <laughs> even though there were some really good options. And um, I then started looking into PhD programs, uh, mostly in the UK, because I, you know, it was a question of timing and it was also a question of funding. Um, but when I started looking at the UK, I, you know, looked at uh, different schools, the LSE, Cambridge, um, Edinburgh, and potentially Exeter. And what struck me about Edinburgh was when I started contacting faculty members, um, I became, you know, very deeply connected with the intellectual drive um, behind two professors there. And that was my, who became my supervisors, Adam Sauli, whom I'm sure you know. I do indeed. Um, yeah. And uh, Wilfred Swanden, 
And I think what was really unique about Edinburgh was that my two supervisors did very different things. Yeah. Um, Adam is an expert on the international relations of, of the MENA region um, and, you know, uh, non-armed state actors specifically. Um, and he'd done his first book, you know, looked at Iraq and Lebanon. Um, and he's done a lot of work subsequently on Iraq and Lebanon as well. So kind of two divided uh, societies. Um, and on the other hand, so he, so Adam, you know, gave, was the kind of primary person uh, um, and mentor who took me on in, in terms of looking at the politics of the region. But my other supervisor, Wilfred Swenden, didn't work on the MENA region. And in fact, he worked primarily back then on, you know, divided states in Western Europe. And now his work has expanded to India. And he's done some really good work on India as well in terms of federalism, governing in divided societies, mm-hmm. uh, you know, institutional uh, uh, capacity building and, and things like that. Um, and so what that allowed me to do was that it, it gave me the perfect kind of nexus of intellectual um, uh, mentorship Whereas on the one hand, you know, Adam uh, brought in the expertise of the politics of the MENA region. Wilfried was able to really help me navigate a lot of the literature and discourse on divided societies and governing in divided societies more broadly and institutions in general um, from the Western European experience, uh, you know, North Ireland, Scotland, uh, Belgium and, and other places, um, as well as India. And that gave me a comparative advantage that I I really do think I would have missed out on if I had chosen another place. And so I always say that I've been very lucky and blessed in that I had great PhD supervision um, and I didn't have, you know, some of these really unfortunate horror stories where that mentorship can go, you know, um, and not necessarily in a positive direction. And so that's where that journey took me. And um, I, I consider myself really lucky to have had these very different people that do very different things guide me into a project um, that was, you know, that's that that's complex in its own right. Um, but I think, you know, looking at Iraq, it's often missing from the larger discourse and, and comparative works on governing and divided societies, for example. Um, and so I was I was really lucky to have that opportunity. That's really, really interesting to know. And I think it explains one of the things that, that I love most about your work, Shamiran, which is this this bringing together of the, um, I, I don't want to fall into the sort of the silo and trap, but the, the sort of the area studies work on the region, but also that, that more sort of institutional dimension, the focus on the, the processes of governance and institutions and their impact on people but firmly in the context of, of Iraq and its broader regional environments. That's that's interesting to, to hear how that all came about. But maybe you can tell us a little bit about the, the PhD project, please. Sure. So the, the PhD project, my dissertation looked at, um, looked at the ways in which um, institutions and institutional constraints in Iraq throughout formative state building time periods have shaped how ethnic groups mobilized against the state, but also, you know, especially under the Ba'athist era, how ethnic groups form solidarities um, and cut across segmental cleavages um, against the Ba'ath regime. And here I'm thinking about the Iraqi opposition, for example, of the 1970s, 1980s. 
obviously, most notably the Iraqi Communist Party, which was quite multi-ethnic. Um, and so what I'm what I what, what the dissertation and now book project is trying to understand and unpack is, you know, you have post 2003, that is the pivotal moment by which you have this kind of mass restructuring of the state in terms of the type of institutional changes that we see happening, right? Um, the kind of loose consociational and formal consociational model that was adopted, um, you know, uh, the constitution of 2003, of 2005, that allows for, you know, different forms of federalism and things like that. And yet that's not enough to tame ethnic discord. And so what I'm, what I, what I became interested is in the question of why, why is it that, you know, post 2003, when you have all of these, you know, systems that have been put in place that are supposed to, you know, in a way, um, tame, uh, fractionalization along ethnic, uh, fault lines. And by saying ethnic, I include sectarian, mm-hmm. you know, um, yeah. tribal and religious and so on. So it's much broader because I'm not specifically looking at the sectarian component in the Iraq. Um, but rather we see this kind of fractionalization that, that unfolds, even when institutions that are, that were put in place that were supposed to do the opposite. Um, and in, you know, in that way they haven't worked, which is what the special issue that I look at or that I just, um, edited, uh, tackles as well. Um, and to do that, that kind of got me thinking about, and my conversations with Adam, my conversations with Wilfried, and then later on, um, other people who came on my uh, dissertation committee, including Ellen Lust, really got me thinking about the historical legacies. So what was it about preceding periods of ethnic exclusion from the state that really shaped how ethnic elites in the lead up to the post-2003 uh, you know, era that shaped the ways in which they envision state institutions, um, uh, you know, uh, following the collapse of the Ba'ath Party, but the ways in which they also were informed by their previous, you know, um, uh, experience of a highly centralized, highly exclusionary state under predominantly Sunni Arab rule since the time of state formation. Um, And that's led me to, you know, think about how historical legacies of exclusion shape subsequent patterns of exclusion as well. Um, In that, you know, you have previously excluded ethnic elites, that's, let's say, predominantly, you know, the predominantly uh, Shia Iraqis and uh, Kurdish Iraqis, as well as minority groups um, that, you know, have come to kind of uh, uh, control the center of power post-2003. Um, that then kind of, in their own way, replicate patterns of exclusion against, let's say, Sunni Arabs, um, most notably. And so it's understanding these kind of these historical legacies mm-hmm. and the ways in which historical legacies and institutions and institutional design has this kind of a reverberating effect on, uh, you know, uh, state building periods uh, later on. It's fascinating hearing you you talk. I have so many questions that go in all manner of of directions about comparative case studies, about the uh, the more philosophical dimensions of of those institutions. But it's it's really really rich and and fascinating stuff. Um, and I, I would really urge anyone who hasn't done to to get hold of a copy of this special issue that. Uh, that, that you've just edited in the Journal of Intervention and State Building. It really is excellent. 
and brings together some top-notch scholars on on Iraq. But Shamiran, I must ask, where does the the sort of the external legacy of of colonialism and and foreign intervention fit into this in terms of the the first, second and perhaps even third order consequences of of exclusion? Sure. So I think, you know, in looking at Iraq and in trying to situate Iraq within other post-colonial societies, um, so much work has been done, uh, really fascinating work has been done on how colonial legacies, um, exclusionary, uh, have colonial legacies tied to exclusionary state formation and exclusionary state building under colonial tutelage, whether it be in different, you know, states in Africa, India, um, and in Indonesia, um, and obviously in the case of Western Europe, you can make a pretty strong case for, you know, uh, Ireland and North Ireland and Scotland and kind of looking at these systems and how they, you know, progressed into the devolved, you know, systems that we see today is that the, the early colonial setup mattered in structuring how different groups came to see the state, but also in some ways, um, you know, I don't want to be certainly I'm not making a causal claim of path dependence mm-hmm. uh, because there isn't that because there's so many different kind of facets to understanding contentious politics in these societies, but rather did set a trajectory for the preferential treatment allotted to particular groups that then carries forward. Um, and, you know, Wimmer, um, Varshney, um, you know, uh, uh, Prerna Singh, for example, um, uh, and um, A.J. Varghese and others have looked at these cases in, you know, in very different contexts. Um, and so what I try to understand is that colonialism in and of itself was, you know, a form of external intervention and in that you have states that were created um, that, you know, were products of obviously external incursion into the region. Mm-hmm. And what I'm really interested in, in the case of Iraq and then situating Iraq's development within these other case studies and other works that have looked at these colonial legacies is that looking at British colonial policy and the calculations that went into the political, economic and social formation of the state that we actually see. um, And much of that, as in other contexts, you know, served to kind of bolster the colonial foothold into the region and into these states. Um, what I'm interested in, most notably, when it comes to you know Iraq's colonial history, is the impact that colonial, colonially set up institutions had across different time periods, um, and the ways in which that kind of structured politics, and you know, in in that way, structured politics of exclusion that then had an impact on state weakness and state fragility. Um, and across different time periods, you know, opened the state for different forms of external incursions, whether it be through covert operations or kind of more direct um, forms of intervention. Um, and that's the kind of, you know, gist of of how this kind of historical period really came to inform what we see, you know, under the Bathus era and post-2003. Amazing. Thank you so much for for sharing all of that. Again, I have so many more questions that I could ask, but I'm conscious that we also need to uh, be celebrating something else that has uh, that has recently come out in the past year or so, I believe, 
which is your, oh, I say the past year. I, of course, mean the past two months. So apologies for that. Um, yeah, your no. your wonderful book with Valentin Mogadam titled After the Arab Uprisings, Progress and Stagnation in the Middle East and North Africa. So first of all, congratulations. Um, but second, just tell us a little bit about, about what you were trying to do in that, please. Sure. So the book actually started out as a an article length project. Um, <laughs> right. We, we had uh, and it began around 2016. Um, and, you know, we began by asking this question of what what explains divergence that we were seeing at the time, um, both in terms of, you know, why Egypt reverts to authoritarianism and arguably one that is much more repressive under the FCC regime than under Mubarak in 2013 why Tunisia at the time of writing, um, you know, had pivoted towards this positive path of democratization, albeit with its own problems, um, because all nascent democracies have their own, you know, kind of roadblocks and hurdles. Um, And why we see this kind of stagnation that we see in Morocco and things like that. And of course, other states like Bahrain, Libya, um, Syria and Yemen experience some pretty robust shocks, but also different forms of external influence. Um, And so the project, basically, the book asks why were some but not all of the Arab Spring or uh, Arab uprisings of 2011 uh, accompanied by these kind of relatively quick and nonviolent outcomes in the way of democratization, regime change, um, and just kind of overall social transformation in kind of more uh, positive and progressive um, directions. And to explain this, we really started looking at mapping out the different ways we could explain this divergence. And so we focused on seven countries and our, you know, our focus on these seven countries was really informed by both the number of protest movements, the number of people that were protesting, and how long the protest movements were sustained for, that kind of led to the different different pathways that we see unfolding. Um, And so here we focused on Tunisia, Egypt, Morocco, Bahrain, Syria, uh, Libya, and Yemen. And we look at, the book examines four variables um, that are the four main empirical chapters of the book. And we explain the difference between the kind of two sets of cases. And these two sets of cases are, you know, Tunisia, Egypt, and Morocco that had initially embarked on both less violent outcomes in comparison to the other sets of cases, but also initially in in a more positive direction. And again, we, you know, we really treat Egypt as an outlier here and we account for what happens uh, post 2013. and then we compare that with other cases, which was Libya, Syria, um, Bahrain, and Yemen that had both more violent outcomes, but that also led to, you know, substantially kind of varied outcomes in the ways of, you know, either state collapse, civil wars, or mass forms of repression um, and kind of system- systematic forms of repression. So to explain this divergence, we look at four variables. We look at the nature of state and society, uh, sorry, state and regime type. So what were these states like before and what they, you know, what they turned out to be afterwards, so after 2011. And then we look at the, uh, the strength and robustness of civil society 
um, that may explain divergence across the cases, um, especially in the case of Tunisia and Morocco, where you see a lot more kind of robust civil society engagement than you did in other cases. Um, women and gender mobilization, and I think this is really unique to the comparative nature of the book because, you know, the the most works on the Arab uprisings either silo the gender component um, or, you know, in terms of comparative case studies, really didn't take the gender component into account. Um, and we bring in this variable as a robust variable for actually, and we make the argument that to understand some of the trajectories of these countries, we really need to look at the role of gender and women's mobilization in these states. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's, you know, a kind of a novel analysis in and of itself. And then we also look at the nature of different forms of external influence. And here we focus across the cases, we focus on both coercive and non-coercive forms of influence. So what is it about aid and aid allocations, let's say from the EU um, and Southern Mediterranean states to Morocco and Tunisia specifically, um, that, you know, that allows for a different type of diffusion um, between the EU and those states versus, you know, uh, U.S. aid allocations to Egypt and specifically military aid allocations um, and other states in the region as well. And then we look also at coercive types of influence, which is military interventions. Right. Okay. Um, and that becomes really kind of uh, prevalent when we look at Bahrain, Libya, Syria and Yemen. Um, I do have an article that's forthcoming that kind of looks at in the Journal of International Politics that looks much more kind of specifically at how changes to the regional structure um, at the onset of the protest movement in some ways, you know, shapes how external states see an opportunity um, for, um, you know, engaging different types of um, influence and specifically through military interventionism. And so what the book overall kind of tries to do is look at different variables and how these different variables shape the different uh, trajectories and outcomes that we see across these seven case studies. It's wonderful and it's a really, really great way of, of doing this type of comparative work. Um, I guess most of the literature on the uprisings, and I include myself in this, have been guilty of doing implicitly comparative work without making those comparative aspects um, as explicit as perhaps they need to be, which has consequences for the 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 rigor of the uh, of the analysis, I guess. But that's that's something that you certainly do uh, do so well in this book. Can I ask though, Shamaran? I mean, what's the what's the main sort of argument that you think would surprise people that that comes out of the book for anyone who's not read it yet? Sure, I think. Um... One, that the, the, the gender and women's mobilization component is really pivotal to understanding how mass mobilization and different forms of contentious politics unfolded in different states and states that had robust women's movements and women mobilization and capacity um, or capacity for women's mobilization. Um, in the initial, and I kind of want to really emphasize that, in the initial wave of protests um, had both less violent outcomes, but also uh, initially more positive trajectories. And so looking at Morocco, Tunisia, and to an extent Egypt, 
um, but most notably Morocco and Tunisia. And two, um, you know, the external dimension and the different forms of external influence, both in coercive and non-coercive terms, um, really had an impact on the different trajectories that we see unfolding. You know, states like Yemen, Libya, um, and Syria descend into internationalized civil wars because of regional and international interventions, um, either in support of ruling autocrats, you know, in the case of Syria, for example, you know, Russia, Russia's backing of the Syrian regime, um, but also um, uh, on a regional level, how states like the GC, some GCC states, uh, Turkey um, and Iran, uh, of course, kind of, you know, engage in different forms of interventions in support of rebel groups, um, you know, anti-regime or pro-regime rebel groups. Um, but also, you know, the case that in looking at the Arab uprisings, uh, you know, more broadly and comparatively, the kind of MENA democracy movements also took place and, and in and during a time of massive global economic crises. Um, and that was, you know, that meant that the international conditions or the kind of global system conditions, you know, the, the uprisings took place at a time when you have this kind of mass global shock um, that then posed all sorts of constraints, economic constraints and political constraints for how new ruling elites or existing elites in some of these places had to navigate these kind of larger um, constraints that were tied to the global political economy. Um, and so in that sense, what we're seeing in terms of trajectories mirror some of the 1990s, you know, um, movements that we saw anti kind of neoliberal, uh, movements. Mm -hmm. Um, but they also kind of had the, the post uprisings trajectories are different in that, you know, they're nested within these kind of mass global uh, kind of financial meltdowns, um, which meant that the, the overall global environment, you know, wasn't necessarily conducive to these emergent movements, um, which may change. You know, even if you look at places like Tunisia and Morocco and Egypt, you know, change a lot harder to come about in terms of various reforms in social policy reforms towards military spending and militarism in general, um, you know, civil society capacity building and things like that. And so, you know, it's it kind of situates the Arab uprisings within these kind of larger um, uh, shocks, so to speak, global shocks um, to understand, you know, that's the argument that we make is to kind of understand these trajectories, looking at these four variables is important, but we have to situate them within the kind of larger context of what's happening. I think that's that's so very important. That idea of everything being nested is yeah. is is really, really key. And while a lot of people, and again, I include myself in this, nest their work in uh, their, their sort of localized work within regional politics, I think we we struggle to maybe push it that little bit further to to factor in the the, the global trends of the the financial crisis etc that that really do have a massive role to play and that i think is one of the the wonderful strengths of of the book and of, of your work more broadly shamaran we've been speaking for a long time now 
And I'm conscious that you have a day to go and get on with and teaching to be done and all things like that. So I'll just like to close by saying a huge thank you for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure connecting with you and speaking through your work. It's been really wonderful reading all of it and, and being challenged and provoked intellectually. So a huge thank you for all of this. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Simon. And I look forward to potentially meeting in person in the future. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Huge thank you to Shamiran for her time today. You can find her on Twitter at Shamiran Mako. That's at Shamiran Mako. And uh, as always, I must also thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for taking the time to engage with us. Please do like, follow, subscribe to uh, to what we're doing here on SoundCloud, on Apple Podcasts, on Acast, on Spotify. We really appreciate you uh, you, you doing that and, uh, and sharing the podcast. It really means a lot. Do also sign up to our newsletter, which you can find on the CEPAD website. That's www.cepad.org.uk, where you can stay in touch with everything that we're doing, all things CEPAD related, our activities, our publications, and the great work that our fellows have been doing. The latest episode, or issue of that, I should say, is, is coming out soon. So, once again... Thanks for listening.